What's up, everyone? Um, the surprising uh, duo on screen, you may be surprised. Zach Ford is on assignment and not here. So uh, this is the first episode ever, um, at least outside of a review that is, does not feature the two of us. But I brought in someone who, let's be real, have, have much more fun with this movie than Zach would. Although I did get some uh, sneaky hints from Zach that he may like this movie and was coming on to defend it. So this is going to be a much less interesting podcast now that he's not here. Um, I have the wonderful Andrew James Barr here. Lucas, at last, <laughs> we see each other through screens. What's up, buddy? I'm good. I'm good. This was um, an interesting movie to watch. Uh, in case the audience has not figured it out, um, we're talking 2012's Les Miserables, which is... <laughs> I did not realize this, like, the seventh or eighth different movie adaptation of this story. Oh, um, Yeah. David, they've, there's like a 1930s one that was like up for the Oscars or something. There's some, there's a Liam Neeson, Jeffrey Rush one from the 90s, which I've never seen. Which actually cuts off after Javert's suicide. It literally ends right there in the Liam Neeson one. It's so weird. I take that might actually be a better ending. <laughs> <laughs> it might have. The stuff after Javert's suicide is a little boring, if we're being honest. It's not that, that fascinating. Before we jump all the way into uh, the world of France, we wanted to do a little last Letterbox movie. Uh, Andrew, what's the last movie you logged on Letterbox? The last movie uh, I logged on Letterbox um, is, well, at least new movie, um, is The Trip to Spain, um, the oh. Steve Coogan, Rob Brydon film. Um, I have been, I, I've seen the first three. I'm uh, planning on watching The Trip to Greece, the last one uh, coming up, but. This movie was great. Um, the chemistry between these two guys is just undeniable. Uh, and that's the scallop scene in this movie is one of the funniest things I have ever seen in film. Just like the way that they're turning into like a bond, like game between like the hero and villain. It's so funny. The ending is a little abrupt, kind of comes out of nowhere a little bit, but it, it's such a good movie. Yeah, I'm a I'm a big fan of this uh, entire and all four of these films. Um, they're just just a really comforting like three and a half stars consistently. They're never brilliant, they're never bad, but they're always enjoyable just because you like that relationship between the two. Even when like as it goes along, their relationships gets a little bit more uh, contentious, and you start wondering if they actually like each other around the third mm -hmm. and fourth movie. Um, but it also that dynamic still works mostly because I think, unsurprising, I think Coogan reads is a massive asshole and that's everything i've heard about him as a as a, a creative person oh, really? not necessarily the most fun person to deal with um and bryden seems like the exact opposite in that he might mm. just be a little bit too much of a goofball but i think the dynamic really works and i i'm sort of jealous of uh people in britain who get to watch it as a tv show full length like eight episodes and rather than getting 90 minutes of this get like 200 or 300 minutes of it because i feel like i could totally watch them like legit just traveling around eating food and doing dumb impersonations honestly i i'm the same way um as much as i do like them in movie format and i don't really watch tv that much i think that that format is really really helpful to break mm -hmm. up some of the monotonous points uh in the film franchise i had never heard that about steve coogan before um because i had i had been like doing like a little deep dive into his movies and he doesn't seem to come off that way in film, except in this franchise. But I guess it's a little truer to form. Oh, I've always, yeah, I've always I loved like, Rob Brydon. 
too. I feel like I feel like Steve Coogan is an asshole in like ninety percent of his roles. I just I, maybe this is just me, but I feel like I've seen so many stuff with um, him where he's just kind of a dick. Even just like stuff like. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, what's there's like the our idiot brother. He's a complete dick in that. Um, oh, I haven't seen other, that one. So there's other stuff. I'm. I think he tries to soften himself when he does more drama stuff like Philomena. But overall, he seems to be a, a tad abrasive. Even if even if not maybe the worst person. I may have totally slandered this guy. For all I know, <laughs> I mean, I, I know exactly. Um, I hope I didn't. If I did, I'm deeply sorry. Um, <laughs> Expect a letter from his lawyers in the mail, Lucas. That's probably going to come within two to three weeks. Yeah, probably haven't. Oh, that the mail's really slow this day. I'll probably lose the letter. Um, yeah, yep. Statue of limitations would have cut off by then. Oh, hopefully, hopefully. Um, so I will also stay in the United Kingdom for my last film, which is I finally got around to seeing uh, Steve McQueen's Hunger, which is the only Steve McQueen film ah. to the point I had not seen uh, the story of Irish revolutionary Bobby Sands, who went on a 66-day hunger strike in prison um, to protest uh, the Irish people not basically given the control of their own country um, in the 1980s. Uh, it's interesting that a lot of Steve McQueen's film feature, feature Margaret Thatcher as like an adversary. He clearly is not the biggest fan of her. Um, you can go to as like, most people in England are. Yeah, you go to the Small Axe <laughs> trilogy. She's seen as kind of a, a bad person in several of those, and this kind of continu- continues it. Uh, there's a really amazing scene where uh, Liam Cunningham plays a priest and has this whole conversation with Michael Fassbender, which is just amazing and kind of reminds you that. This, you know, we we live in the recent memory for us. Uh, Fassbender does not necessarily have the best career, and a lot of it is uh, coded in scandal because of his own personal behavior. But uh, you go to some of his early roles, and he is just absolutely magnetic, and you can't take your eyes off him on screen. He's just amazing. Yeah, I I have not seen this one. I haven't seen. I've only actually ever seen one Steve McQueen uh, piece. Yeah, he's one of those blind spots for me that I mm-hmm. know that he has so much respect, and people point to things like hunger and shame. Um, it, it's just I've only seen Twelve Years a Slave, and mm. that's pretty much it for me. Um, but it's one that I have been kind of wanting to see. He's a director that it's hard to get yourself in the mood to watch his stuff because he often tackles yeah. really, really heavy topics and things that like don't make you feel super happy when you're done with them, you know. He's like, he's a he's a a step above Lars von Trier in that sense. <laughs> a little more palatable Lars von Trier. He's the historical Lars von Trier, because all his stories are based on like <laughs> the true life. He's like, I'm gonna tell a story about a hunger strike, a sex addiction, like a freed slave being dragged back to the south. And then he's like well, Widows is kind of different than that. <laughs> that's, that's not his tip. That, that's that's one like basically commercial disguise everything else. Like, hey, story. I can do other things. Yeah, and then he does small acts, and he's like, most of these will be about the injustices, and one of them will be about a house party. Just going to, you know, give you one respite <laughs> from, from, you know, court cases and the education system failing people of color to, you know, hang out at a house party. That's going to be the sequel. That's going to be like the the reboot of the House Party series with Kid and Play. He's going to bring Kid and Play back. This would be an amazing crossover that I, I, I don't love that. <laughs> it would be very, be very weird. Um, let's jump ahead. 
because the real reason we're here is to talk about Tom Hooper's Les Mis. Um, Bar, do you want to give a plot summary of this uh, film, or do you want me to give a plot summary of this film? Uh, I'll see what I can do. All right, let's uh, do this. All right, so there's this guy. Uh, he's a prisoner. His name is Valjean, John Valjean, kind of a lazy name, honestly. Um, and uh, he has been sent on parole, um, and basically he decides to uh, steal a bunch of silver from a bishop uh, who actually ends up giving it to him to have a better life. But he's constantly chased by Inspector Javert. Uh, and then, you know, it's kind of, uh, he kind of becomes a mayor. No one knows who he is. Uh, things happen. Uh, he picks, he ends up having to take care of uh, Fontaine's daughter, Cosette, who dies because, you know, he was busy talking to Javert. Uh, and so basically Cosette falls in love with, uh, this guy who is, you know, leading a secondary re uh, French revolution. Uh, it doesn't go well. Valjean, while still running from Javert, gets dragged into the fold, uh, and then basically proves to Javert that he's a good person, that people can change Javert. You know, makes a decision. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, Cosette, Marius get married. Uh, Valjean dies. Everyone lives happily ever after in ghost, you know, ghost world. Mm. That's a good good plot summary. I would also like to say, the thing. my biggest thought at the end of this film was, Les Mis has the stupidest, most bizarre plot of any musical I can think of. Oh, it's I know some dumber ones, believe I'm me. Sure, I'm, sure there, I'm sure there are, but this, I was just like, I was like, wait, this is a really famous musical, like a really famous, really popular musical, like probably the most popular um, original musical adaptation we've talked about. Like we started with, um, let's go back to the beginning of this month. We talked Cabaret and Cabaret is kind of like the ideal of what you want a movie musical to be in that it is an art tour director from the screen. No, I'm not going to say the best one. I'm saying- oh, I was about it, to say, I disagree with you. I'm not saying in terms of the best one. I'm saying in terms of the actual process of transferring because it has an auteur stage director who took it, went to the screen, and then made choices to adapt it into a movie while keeping the core essence of what it is while not directly adapting every single sequence. Mm -hmm. Then we go to uh, Little Shop of Horrors, which is basically a movie where does not matter what you do because no one knows the stage play coming in. So no one's going to care if you change 10 things or a hundred, because that's that show was basically non-existent before it even became a movie. And then it came back more famous after the movie came out. And then we did the producers, which is sort of the lazy version. It's very fun. I like, I enjoy it, but it is a really lazy adaptation. It's basically like shot for shot. It's a lot of straight on stuff. It's a lot of like, we were very critical of the fact that it has like nine, 10 minute dance sequences, which get mm. real boring at times. And it's like, you, you could have added one this static shot. It's yeah. It's just one static shot of this, the entire street. And it's like, you didn't need to have this. This is not a stage play. You don't need to do that. And then Les Mis is this weird thing where it's not a shot for shot remake. It makes a lot of choices, but it also, times there are really questionable dis like decision making behind those choices like tom hooper let's start with him i don't really know what tom hooper was trying to do yeah. with his musical i don't know if tom hooper really understands musicals because he does a lot of stuff where he doesn't make cups a couple big choices one he almost shoots it documentary style where he jams a camera in people's faces 
yeah. constantly in a way that is very weird and also really hurts his cast because it incentive it, it emphasizes the fact that a lot of them are not very good singers. And that's yeah. really evident if you jam a camera in somebody's face. You're like, oh yeah, you're not great at singing because I just jammed a camera in your face. Yeah. Like we shit on Russell Crowe way too much in this movie. I know. Like he he is not the only person who is bumming notes. Like Hugh Jackman, theatrically trained singer, oh yeah, is hitting so many bad notes. Like yeah. the only person I think that escapes this movie unscathed when it comes to like the notes is Samantha Barks. Um what but Trivet? I think Trivet, Aaron Trivet is pretty good. We can talk about Aaron Trivet later. Actually, um, look, he's one of the few people in this thing that I find at least enjoyable in his role. I do agree. Jackman is the most one of the most disappointing performances I've seen in a while in a musical. Because this is somebody who, if Crow's not good, it's like, well, you cast somebody who wasn't a musical performer. Exactly. Hugh Jackman has been on Broadway. Hugh Jackman has been nominated for Tonys. And Hugh Jackman is not good in this movie. No, like, he's, he's not. He's bad. And some of the songs are like, I can't tell if it's his fault or somebody told him not to sing out full ballad style because he's like real soft underplaying some super power ballads. And I'm like, this is some this is some weird choices. I don't know if that's his choice or that's a directorial choice. Yeah, it's weird because, okay, so... If I'm remembering this correctly, what they did is they had a live orchestra playing while they had an earpiece in the actor uh, as they were like on screen. So they were basically singing to a live orchestration. But I think that was the wrong choice when a lot of the time you're filming them actually running or actually in the rain. And it's messing with the vocal performance of all of these actors. Like, I... There's a reason that a lot of dance uh, in like theater and uh, film, they're not singing and dancing at the same time for long stretches because, you know, your diaphragm is getting crunched and smashed yeah. and like it's completely affected. In the opening scene of this movie, there are so many bum notes, but that's because they're hoisting like heavy ropes and they're in this water that's crashing into them. And you're like, why are you making these people sing in this situation? It's a terrible decision, and it's affecting the actual vocals. Yeah, they sang live on set, like a 1960s-style thing. But when you make Rex Harrison do it as he walks around a drawing room, it's very different than when you're asked to pull on a rope. Or like, yeah. you're right, this is, this is a weird choice they make. They want them to sing live on set like they would in a 1960s musical, where it's a soundstage, and you're just like walking around a room. So that makes sense. But they also have these huge numbers. Like, they want to have this really visual, impressive sets where, like, they're pulling massive ships. They're building huge barricades. They're running up and down stairs. Like, they're doing all these huge events. But they also want them to sing. And you're right. It kills them. No one survives. Like, no. and I think you can see it with Jackman a lot. He looks like he's out of breath a lot. Or, he like, he's trying mm -hmm. to use less breath than he actually needs. And that's why you get these, like, clipped... Um, held notes and like high notes especially get really screwed up because you can see that like Jackman wants to hit them and he probably does have them in his range, but he just doesn't have the breath to get up there. Yeah. This is a, it's a very weird choice by Hooper. And I'm genuinely surprised that no one, a producer on the set was not like, I can't believe they filmed this, looked at dailies. We're looking at this film coming together and we're like, mm -hmm. 
dude, we need to go into a studio. We need to let these people sit there, get some water, breathe, you know, do like the whole thing so we yeah. can get the great because Lay Miz fundamentally is almost opera. Like it is yeah. powerful, powerful, explosive, impressive music. This is not Rogers and Hammerstein, where it's like kind of a fun musical where like the even there are occasional impressive songs, but a lot of it's just kind of like fun and enjoyable. But like we talked about the Music Man last time. The Music Man is not particularly impressive vocally. It's not, no, a, not really. a musical that requires people to be operatic. Les yeah. Mis does, and they just they well they made two mistakes. They made everyone sing live, and they cast a bunch of people who can't really sing. It's it's just it's a it was a, just a terrible combo right there. Yeah, and like for one example, I want to talk about is um, uh, Anne Hathaway. Like she's doing actually one of the more impressive performances when it comes to the vocals even though she's not technically great mm -hmm. but like she's singing through crying and like like these big genuine emotions where your like throat clenches up and so she's actually doing a not a bad job hitting the notes it's hard to do that but then you have other people like eddie redmayne who acting wise is good in this movie but when it comes to like the singing itself, he sounds like he's trying to sing as if something is like stuck in his throat and he's not trained to sing like this. Um, only really Samantha Barks and Aaron Tveit and Hugh Jackman, even, and even though he's not doing a great job, <laughs> we're trained to do this. So everyone sounds strained. Everyone sounds like they're out of breath and have no idea what they're doing. Because Tom Hooper didn't help them at all. Yeah, I think the, the biggest sign you see of this is the fact that every time it, they cut to a wide shot and you just hear the chorus singing in the background, that's always the best vocal performance because that's clearly the stuff that they shot in a studio. They, they recorded in the studio because mm -hmm. they're recording it over action. So you don't have to see people individually singing. And oh, that's the and best you, moments of it. And you can tell because the oh, audio went way it, better. Well, actually, I was going to say that the audio sounds canned. It's, oh, that's true as well. Yeah, it clearly sounds like it was recorded somewhere else. Yeah, they make some, some interesting choices. They also do a lot of... Um, Tom Hooper wants to stick to the almost no dialogue thing, so he has people like sing song say stuff, and there's some weird, like, the, the first interaction with the priest is very weird mm -hmm. because it's it feels very clear that they cast somebody who genuinely just could not sing those notes or could not sing at all. As and the bishop? Should... Yeah. Oh, I've got a surprise for you. That's the original guy who played Jean Valjean. Cole Wilkinson oh, was the original right. Jean Valjean. And he's bad. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he heard his vocal cords or something, but there's in that scene, it was like the first one I noticed where it was like, he, he can't, like, he can't even fake it. Crow can fake it occasionally. Like, I actually mm -hmm. think, and we go back to this. We'll, we'll finish the comment. I want to go back to Crow because I actually think Crow is the big the big story of this. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think he can sing it, and they probably should have cast somebody else, and maybe this was one of those castings where they're like, let's put him in it because it's a it's a shout-out to the fans who want to see this doing it. Yeah, but he's he, one too. He needs to. He just needs to get into the song. Like even I know that the like those in between those transition pieces are not as vocally impressive as you know stars or something, but they still need to be sung. And the fact that he's basically saying words to music. I mean, this 
this isn't my fair lady. You can't pull that off. That's not the role that that character is supposed to fulfill. So it's, it was a very weird moment. And they do that several other times throughout the film where they have even um, the woman in the factory. That's very much, it has moments where they're singing it and there's moments where they're saying it. Um, it really does. And I think it probably does go back to what you're saying, which is just like, they were having trouble with breath. This may have legitimately just been a, we don't have the breath to sing because you're asking us to do all this running around and, you know, jumping and yelling and stuff. And they're, they're like, yeah, we can't sing after doing all that. Yeah. Um, it, it's just super disappointing because if you ever listen to like the original recording um, of the stage show, um, it's done incredibly well, that the whole talk thing, thing because it, you're right, it's a opera. It's done at like comp all the dialogue is completely through music. I've done it before. It was the, the only high school show I ever did. And so it's not easy to do that, that dialogue-esque parts in there when you're literally in heavy outfits uh, mm. that are just crushing your body, um, which is one of the only good things about this movie is that the costumes were actually pretty solid. Yeah, um, and set design. Good set design, I think. Yeah, um, but it... It's especially in those dialogue-esque moments, especially if you've been if the people have like running or things like that. It's just it it's so hard to do anything like that. Even just normally singing with like with all that physical stuff going on to your body, it's just it's such a weird choice that Tom Hooper made, and I just I, it's so confusing to me. Yeah, it's very frustrating because it feels like. It, it's it's more frustrating in, in some respects than like other musicals where they just actively don't cast people who can sing and kind of ignore the vocals of it. Mm -hmm. um, like some of the Sondheim adaptations versus like this where it feels like you wanted them to sing impressively and then you just hamstring them at every possible opportunity. Like it would not have been hard to ask them not to sing live on set or have them sing live on set so they can get into the performance, but then don't actually use that version of the audio when you release your final yeah. version of the film. Yeah, that's what a lot of other musicals did. They would sing live on set, but then they would just dub the actual audio over. It's 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 a, a formula that's worked. So I guess like Tom Hooper is one of those people who wants to be an artiste when it comes to being a director, apparently. Um, rumor is that he wanted cats to be as realistic as possible, which is can't do yeah, that. Yeah, I heard I heard that stuff. Mm -hmm. It sounds horrifying. Yeah. He's supposed to be this really genuinely intelligent person, but I don't think that he—I don't think that he knows the difference in medium. I noticed this as I was watching this. There are so many times where someone will just suddenly be in the scene out of nowhere, and when you're on stage, people can just walk in off from off stage and get introduced into that scene. But when you do that, such as like when Tenardier and his crew are about to raid the home of Valjean. Yeah, makes no sense. It's jarring and it makes no sense. Another good one is the escape with young Cosette. The, out, the actual layout of where they are doesn't make any sense. They go from like regular streets to like some kind of like building or church or something like they, they jump yeah. rapidly, but it's like, he literally turns a corner and they're in a completely different environment in, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, mm -hmm. It happens several times throughout the film where like 
they don't I can't tell if they built sets that didn't make any sense in terms of like layout or they just like shot stuff and edited stuff out and like didn't care. And we're like, it's a I musical. Think, just Yeah. I think they just I think they just used random sets because I was watching another movie like a while ago and I'm watching it going, wait, this is the exact same set as the barricade from Les Mis. And I think they just wow. had like a whole bunch of sets that they could use and use them. Yeah, it does feel like they, it feels, a lot of the stuff does feel somewhat generic at times. Like there, it feels like there are sets that they built, like the opening scene where they're pulling the ships in. That yeah. feels like something they directly built as a set piece. And, but there's definitely pieces where it's like, this is just a random church. This is just a random, you know, street in the old, the old world, wherever, you know, and you just put some French flags out to make it look like it's France. Um, Hooper is just a director. I think that if you, especially if you look at his 2010s, it is hilarious looking back that the King's speech looks great in comparison to his other three, in the other three films. That's like a normal film. He does it well. It tells a good story. Then you mm -hmm. get this, which is kind of a mess. You get the Danish girl, which is like, has some real questionable choices and um, does not age well in terms of like trans representation and relationships between trans people and cis people and like that movie i think pissed me off in the moment and i don't think it's gotten any better and then he does like cats which i still haven't seen i'm gonna see at some point but it feels like one of those films that's just like just like a horror story like i, I have not yeah. there, like nobody seems to say anything good about that unless you're like i like it in how much of a dumpster fire it is that's me that's you yeah that's fair Absolutely. I, I had to see that movie opening night because of an ex-girlfriend. <laughs> wow. There's a reason she's the ex. <laughs> yeah, but like Hooper is just I don't know what choice. Like, you're right. The King's Speech the King's Speech gets a little too much shit. It's actually, it's a decent movie. Um, yeah. it, it's well directed, but then after it that People are just mad at one best picture. That's the only yeah, reason the King's Speech. If the King's Speech had gotten nominated and come an eighth, no one would say anything. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah, you're right. After that, I haven't seen the Danish Girl. To be fair, but he makes so many weird choices now, and what he, he's so aggravating. Like he'll one of the things that he does for some reason he uses so much open space when he's shooting people, like. Someone will be like all the way off to the side over here, but the, all this brick wall is taking up a majority of the shot. And yeah. I just, I, I, I don't know why we keep giving this guy musicals. I think like him and Rob <laughs> Marshall, we need to stop giving them shit. It's a, it's a good point. You're right though. He does do like every shot he is, is like your face or your body over in the corner and then some random like, like, so like I, I legitimately can't tell if he's intentionally focusing this like there are parts where i'm like is this some kind of joke did you like tell your did your dp like accidentally kick the camera and go get some coffee or something because it does feel like there does feel like moments where it's like why are you sh you're shooting something that doesn't matter and also like my god please never do the, the in people's faces singing again do it like for like final high notes or something but don't mm -hmm. constantly do it it's such a weird it's very jarring and um, it makes the universe look way more disgusting than I think it actually is. Oh, yeah. By, by constantly jamming us down everyone's throats. Especially in the sewer seat, where <laughs> they're just covered in shit. And oh, the camera's right up here. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. The other thing that as a director, like you should have final say in this. And I don't know what Tom Hooper was thinking when he watched this movie and saw the editing, because this is some of the worst film editing I've ever seen. And it's by people who are actually talented editors. Is it really? I'm going to look this up. Yeah. One of them is an Oscar winner. Like he, he did Slumdog Millionaire and um, a couple of other things that are like really good. Oh, wow. One of these guys edited Hot Fuzz, Slumdog mm-hmm. Millionaire, um, and then career kind of falls off. Rocket Man. Mm-hmm. Rocket Man's actually pretty decently edited. That's greatly they, edited. Yeah. Yeah. These people actually both have like pretty decent, pretty decent, like, yeah, a lot of British stuff. A lot of, you know, Anna Karenina. A lot of British stuff. A lot, a lot of yeah. Basically, what we've been basically what we've been saying viewing uh, viewing in audio audience is that Tom Hooper really fucked this up. It's a it's a real question. What do you think is the biggest crime of the editing? Is it just is he is he too choppy? Is he? It's it's a combination of too choppy and too jarring. Like for example, at the wedding scene. After Mario's, you know, knocks Tenardier the fuck off his ass, um, he grabs Cosette and starts running towards Valjean, but then literally, in a super oh, yeah. quick edit, is already in the middle of being carried off, and it's like, where the hell, what, give, right. give me time to breathe, movie. It also does this even more concerningly in the middle of songs, where it chops it up, cutting from person to person, in mm-hmm. a way that, like, he's really bad at sense of space. He kills your sense of space. Like when you're doing a, a, a song inside, you know, the third air is in or boarding house. You kind of want to understand the space of it. You want to understand the space of, you know, the meeting house for all the revolutionaries, but you never get that because he chops between everyone's like face too quickly. And you really get like, almost it's, it's almost dis- disorientating because you're just like, I don't know where I am in space anymore. Cause he's just jumped around so fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I have no idea where the hell anyone is. I like the layout of the scenes are distracting, confusing. Um, that was one of the few scenes. The master of the house scene was one of like, the few scenes that was okay because I was so wrapped up in like the trickery that um, actually, Helen Bottom Carter and Sasha Baron Cohen were pulling. It's probably my favorite scene in the entire film. It's probably the best one. I would agree with that. They they. They seem to like have they're good enough singers to pull it off and they've bought into the characters to the point where it actually kind of works. Mm-hmm. Um, and also that's a song that is funny and interesting, but not particularly complex vocally. Right. So it is it is a lot of sort of sing talking and you can sort of get away with it in that scene in the way you can with other scenes. Oh yeah. That's that's the role I played when I uh, when I did oh, this. That's, and that's awesome. Oh, it was so much fun. Um, but you're right, it's it's like those characters were when the creators of the stage show were making the adaptation, they decided that the Tenardiers had to be the comedic, you know, the clowns because you can't have a movie or a show that's <laughs> just miserable people the entire time. So it was a lot easier for them to write like the simpler songs for those characters. And luckily, as you said, 
Sasha Baron Cohen and Helena Bottom Carter are talented enough people to, you know, know the material that they're given and work with it and know how to, you know, incorporate it into their performances. And I think uh, Sasha Baron Cohen just has that, like, perfect build where he's just, like, kind of freakishly tall. He's a little <laughs> bit clown-like. It's very perfect in this scene. He always looks a little bit out of sorts, like he might be might be a marionette being held up by strings. <laughs> um, and he's very funny in that aspect. He just has, like, he has just kind of got that very comedic actor, like, tall, with this extremely long legs body that you can really play with and move in a way that makes you always look like you're about to maybe tip over. I think he plays that very effectively. I think that's a really good way of putting it. I've never thought about that before. <laughs> um, before we get into the, all the characters, let's we talked about Hooper. Let's talk about the story. Mm -hmm. um, you probably know the show better than I do. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think they, they they didn't change that much, did they? They didn't change too much but there's one major thing that they change and it pisses me the fuck off okay um okay. the one major thing they change the one major thing they change is um the eponine's death and eponine is one of my favorite characters in any medium like ever i think that the musical ver like the stage musical version of her character and in the book are just so beautifully crafted and written um in the stage version eponine dies delivering the letter to cosette she's climbing up the barricade after she returns and he's shot in the back just before she can get on the other side so basically she dies knowingly delivering the letter of the love of her life to the woman that she loves over her, uh, that he loves over her. Mm -hmm. And it's so much more poignant than literally turning a gun to her going, no, take me instead. Bang. That is and a then, really goofy scene in the movie. Yeah. When she does that, it, it's pretty goofy. Yeah. And then immediately, immediately after her death, Marius is like, Hey, Gavroche, come here, deliver this letter to this girl that I really like. Just completely uh, just leaving her by the wayside and ruining that character. It's like the only major change to the movie, and it is baffling as to why they would do that. That is a weird choice. I guess they didn't want to have to deal with, I don't know, maybe they didn't want Eponine to do that. Yeah, I think that's a bad choice overall. It makes mm -hmm. her a more interesting character. Um, it also yeah. makes Marius. I mean, Marius sort of looks like a dick anyway. Oh, like, yeah. Cause he like totally is not seeing the obvious shit in front of, in front of his face. Um, mm -hmm. that she's like totally in love to him. And she's like, yeah, can you go find me this girl? And she's like, dude, I'm in love with you. And he's like, yeah, but can you find me this girl? She's like, I'm in love with you. <laughs> like just not seeing that at all. Um, yeah, that is a really frustrating change. And one that like, I don't think streamlines the story or, mm -hmm. you know, it actively the disrupts the story making that change. Yeah, I don't think it does that much. I really that that's a that's a very I do wonder sometimes when musicals get adapted if current directors are like, well, I don't want to do the exact version of the stage play. So they're like, mm -hmm. I'm gonna make a change. I want to make a change that I can make without having to do anything, because I don't really want to have to rewrite part of the play. So I'm like, I'll just like have her get shot here and then have the other dude do this do this letter 
and then I'll be I could just move on and I'll be like, look, he made a change. Or like he's not just I wonder if they're like doing it almost because they don't want to get tagged with the oh you're just a you're just shot for shotting um mm-hmm. the live production. Although maybe think about what you're changing rather than just doing a change because you want to have a change. Yeah, no, I I agree with you because there are other things you probably could have tinkered with. Like I I mean <clears throat> the whole the whole lifting the cart moment could have been, you know, tinkered and moved around or like other things, other small things you could have either like twisted or adapted or just taken out completely. But when you do something that literally destroys the entire, you know, poignancy of a character Mm -hmm. and changes the, basically kind of damages the plot and it damages another character if you like it's so frustrating i can't even put it into words honestly no it's definitely a frustrating moment because it kills the poignancy of that death and it makes the death just simple sacrifice rather than a sac an accidental um occurrence after the the real sacrifice being the letter rather than just taking the bullet because exactly it's, it's obviously easier to just take a bullet for somebody than it is to knowingly go and do this act that hurts yourself, but helps the person you care about. And then mm-hmm. happening to get shot at the end of that. Um, I'm trying to think if there's moments in this film that they could have edited down. It is really, I said this at the beginning, but this is a, it's a really just convoluted story that like, mm-hmm. I think we, I think it's funny because it's so famous and so beloved as a musical that I think in some ways people just kind of let a lot of the stuff slide. Like the fact that, mm-hmm. I don't, the Javert character, like, Javert is an inspector, but he's somehow part of the military? Like, it doesn't, like, is he yeah, is he a de- is he a detective who's searching for criminals? Is he part of the prison system? Is he part of the military? Is he part of all three? Like, there's moments where he seems like he's one or the other, but then they also, like, you know, blur those lines a little bit. Um, it is interesting, too, that, like, it just throws you straight into these events. You don't have mm-hmm. any idea why Lamarck is important. They give. They tell yeah. you that he was the one who spoke for the people, but we don't really know anything about him. We don't know how the revolutionaries got together. We're told that this is after the first French Revolution, and we have a king now. Um, Gavroche is kind of good. I think that performance is not <laughs> terrible. Yeah. No, he's fine. He also ended up playing Jack and Into the Woods, and then kind of like disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, yeah, because he was two pretty bad musicals. <laughs> I mean, fair. Uh, yeah. That would make me want to quit too. Um, it, I mean, it is. It's weird. It's very weird because it's an adaptation of an adaptation. Because like, Victor Hugo wrote this giant sprawling piece. I think this was after Victor Hugo was banished from France, um, and it's this giant book series that's like basically in volumes that he wrote this and then it's whittled down to about a three hour musical which is then whittled down to a two and a half hour musical that tries to incorporate some of the more book elements and it's basically a turducken of a movie yeah what are the book what are the book elements you think that they tried to add on it Back into um the, I, the grandfather Anything that had to do oh. with Marius's grandfather, um, right. 
like I don't I I've seen the stage version like a couple ways and I don't ever remember that character being in any of the stage adaptations. I think, um, there's, a, I think there's a general understanding that all the revolutionaries are in some way um, people of means, but they don't necessarily introduce their backstory. They are seen as sort of like rebels, but also they there's a little bit of a commentary in terms of they're rebels, but they're rebels who didn't have to die in the sewer or starve like some of the actual people. Like they can they have these mm-hmm. ideals and they want to, and there's a reason that they're the people who build a barricade and try to fight back, and the regular people are like, we know we're gonna lose, I'm gonna go inside this house. Um, mm-hmm. we know what life is. It doesn't change regardless of who's in power. We don't get to make that choices. You guys want this because you think you can actually impact who's in right. power and who's in control. Well, honestly, I would have been on the side of the um, of the other people, considering the fact that they started to build a barricade after they start their their actions. <laughs> like I'm watching this movie going, so they're doing the the whole storming of the parade. And then after, like, you know, some shooting goes off, they start running, and then suddenly they start building a barricade. Like, don't you think it, the smart move would have been to build a barricade first, then do this, run back, get yourself ready for the oncoming attack that you're about to get? I would have been on the side of the people, too, because I would have been like, these guys have no idea what they're doing! Yeah, um, they're complete idiots. I think that's really clear. Um, their powder all gets wet. I don't know. Don't put your powder near water. Like there's a lot of a lot of the stuff that happens to them. <laughs> they end up in the position they end up because they were not ready. They're like, we're gonna build a barricade and fight back. And it's like, you're gonna die. Like we all know you're gonna die. You have no shot. It's great that you think this is cool. You didn't even do this smart. You like did it in the middle of everywhere and you tried to pick a fight out in the middle of nowhere and then you like fired some pistols at people and like they have cannons. Like this is not going to go well. It does. It is. I wonder if they could make them look less stupid. I feel like in, I feel like in the stage play, they make them look more competent. So this is a tragic end, but not an ending because their own stupidity. Like it's tragic because they lost against the might of like the evil state rather than the, the version in this where it's like, they just, they were like it was like yeah we knew you were gonna die like you had no shot to begin with you had like you had like twelve guns mm-hmm. like you had like ten dudes I feel like there's I feel like there's an at least an impression given in this stage play that there's more people and this is a better organized and better fighting force yeah um, I, I don't know what happened to make them look dumber in the movie but you're right they look so unprepared whereas in the stage version like. It, you can tell that they have met constantly planning it out. Um, so, like, I don't know what happened in the adaptation to just make them look dumber and less prepared. I, I, I don't get it. I think part of it is that they do the attack at, Lamar- at Lamarck's funeral out in the middle of nowhere with no barricade and no protection and basically, like, jump up on his coffin and just... Mm-hmm. Like out for like, give the middle finger to the to the entire military that that's there, and it's like, did you really think this was going to go well? Like, you should have done a barricade. You should have first before the heavy thing. You should have, you should have had a barricade. You should have had 
people with weapons in higher range. Like the fact that there's so many, like they're just getting picked off by snipers. It's like, well, mm-hmm. no, no shit. Of course there people are going to be, they weren't going to just stand in front of you and shoot at you. Like they're up on the top of the house. It's like, why don't you have people up there too? There's like, mm-hmm. it does really make it look like their entire planning meetings were just like a bunch of 20 year old idiots drinking and sitting around, you know, pretending they were important or they somehow were the future of France when they were just like people who had mm-hmm. nothing better to do. One other thing that so confused me watching this, because this is the first time I ever caught it. I've had to watch this movie three times now, and I, I hate it more and more. Um, <laughs> is that when when like when they're building the barricade, and Chavert is there disguised as like a common like Frenchman. Um, well, they're all French, um, yeah. but just like as a common man, and he volunteers to basically be the spy for the resistance, even though he's spying on the resistance, Gavroche knows who he is. And Gavroche is there. Yeah. And just wait. Gavroche shouldn't have been there, first of all. And so, like, why doesn't Gavroche say anything until he returns? Yeah. This is a weird choice. Um... And they also kind of butcher the Gavroche character another way, which is that his death scene is really not that sad. Mostly because he got killed because he's an idiot. And he's taunting <laughs> the enemy. It's like, that's a way more impactful scene if he actually just gets shot by a sniper or somebody. The way they... has... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, finish up. no, I was gonna say, the way they did it, I think just... I think that your that moment is supposed to appear sad. I think that's the least of the way they play it. They pause after it the characters around the Marek sadness, it's not a very sad moment, mostly because you just know he's going to die the minute he starts jumping and yelling at the British, uh, yelling mm-hmm. at the French, my apologies. It's weird because there's a bunch of British people trying, like, acting like French people, but not, but Sasha Baron Cohen seems to be the only person trying to do a French accent at all. He really um, is. But, uh, so, I actually took this note, because in the stage version, it's not the best fleshed out relationship in the stage version as well, but it's a lot more than in the movie. One of the French revolutionaries, uh, a character by the name of uh, Confrère, Mm. actually has this really strong bond with Gavroche. Like, it's almost as if he's his little brother. They have this, like, really tight camaraderie. And you see it sort of in the movie. He's the one guy who's really going nuts over his death in the movie. Yeah. But I think that paying literally no attention to that up until the death is a, is what really hurts Gavroche's death in the movie. He's basically this character that's He's basically like anybody's from West Side Story. He's like basically trying to show that he should be part of the team, even yeah. though they don't necessarily fit with the mold of the rest of the group. Um, and you're right. He's just this precocious little kid who, you know, was gunned down and we should feel bad for him. Yeah, it is. They don't do a good job explaining why Gavroche is there. Like they just throw him into scenes as this singing kid. But they don't necessarily explain his place very much. He's there all the time. Valjean tells him not to be there. He probably shouldn't be there because he's like a small kid. He's um, like 10. He's very young. Um, 
it is also weird at times that none of the other revolutionaries have the same response to him being there that Valjean has. Like, it's a little bit shocking that none of the other adults, and granted, they're not as old as Valjean, at any point was like, maybe the 10-year-old should not be here. Mm-hmm. Um, it does feel like a weird moment where, like, they're letting him be a really big part of this very important barricade, and he's a little kid. It's like, this is maybe not the best choice. He's um, not going to do much for you guys. No, not really. What's he going to um, do? Make juice boxes for everyone? I really wonder what he's <laughs> going to do. Um, yeah, it's so weird that the, the just the entire like the entire part of the story where like um, Javert is undercover and he's going to go spy on them. Like the fact that they're like, we should have somebody go spy on them, and they're like, yeah, you random person we've never seen before. Why don't we send you rather than like Anjuras or somebody like you actually everyone would trust information coming from them? It is a it is an interesting moment that they're like, yeah, yeah. I I think. I think the idea is that he says that he used to be a part of like the police yeah. task and because of that he knows their ways and can infiltrate them through that way, but then immediately he returns and he knows highly detailed plans that while they're not true, it's literally the same day. It's like how did you discover literally the entire base layout? of the enemy's plan and get back to us in time. It's, it's weird. It, it, everything about this movie is weird. Like we keep saying that because it's true. And it's also, I think that when you're watching the stage play, the music is so impressive. You're so sucked mm-hmm. into the moment that I think you let a lot of this stuff slide, but the minute that the mu- music is not as impressive and you're like, Oh my God, can they please stop? Um, it really does point out all the holes that exist in the plot, which, mm-hmm. you know, are not necessarily Tom Hooper's fault because they're just the, the runoff from the stage play, but also like you need to do the music well. Otherwise, people are going to see those holes. Right. And I actually do want to talk about the scene where Valjean comes and basically because he was able to help the um, the rebels in that one moment, they give him Javert. And I, I do want to say that the acting performance of Russell Crowe in this movie, but especially mm-hmm. this scene, is genuinely good and impressive. Yeah. Because the between the two of them, it the acting is so strong because with Russell Crowe, you can tell that like he they haven't really been feeding him much. He's kind of malnourished, he's wobbling. Um and it it's really where the moral conundrum in his head that leads to his eventual death really starts to churn and like the gears start to click. And Russell Crowe in that, that scene is actually doing a phenomenal job. But then once again, we kind of judge him because stars in your multitude. It is a very, it's, I, I feel like the criticism against him is very frustrating at times because it's like, what did you expect from Russell Crowe? Yeah. He looks like he could play Javert. He acts like he Javert well. He has a lot of the parts of the character down. I think he actually understands the character relatively well. He, I think he knows what he's doing character-wise. The problem is you put him in a movie and you're like, hi, non-singer, can you please go and sing live? Like, this, he, more than anyone, I mean, 
first off, Javert is probably the best vocal performance in the entire show. I don't think it's relatively close. Absolutely, he's got the best songs. It's an that's like a that's a legit all time great performance you get to play. Um, mm-hmm. Javert is just one of those like it's like if you're like talk to singers and like what roles you want to play or like that one Sweeney Absolutely. Todd, you know mm-hmm. stuff like that where it's just like yes, if you do that, that is just so impressive. It's so complicated and it's so technical. And you just like completely hamstring this guy. And then the dumbest thing about this whole movie is that he gets all the criticism in a movie that's not very good generally. But we're like, let's crap on Russell Crowe. It's like, first off, he's not as terrible as everybody says he is. He's not good. I'm not going to stand here and defend him. Because vocally, yeah, he's really bad. He's actually okay in those like interlude scenes where he's like singing about like, you know, like that's the transitions, not the full on songs. He's not too bad in those, but he is very and when bad. He's actually like soft when he's actually like the beginning of Stars is actually not bad. He's hitting the notes. Uh, it's just when he starts to belt that it really comes through. Yeah, he just doesn't doesn't have the diaphragm, doesn't have the vocal range, doesn't have the projection for that. And it is it's kind of sucks because it's like I feel bad for him because I feel like he gets a lot of hate for this movie and is. Honestly, he might be better than Jackman in this. Is that a crazy thing to say? Acting-wise? He's definitely better acting-wise. Absolutely. I'm thinking, I think there's an argument to make. Overall performance, he might be better than Jackman. Like, I just... Overall performance might be in the top three. Yeah, well, this is a, this is a let's do this now. Let's go character by character, because let's okay. be real. We have, we have takes character by character. Okay. And let's start with uh, Hugh Jackman as Jean Valjean. Um, no, no. I got an Oscar nomination for this performance. I don't, don't be just because somebody else won an Oscar for this movie. This and movie they're was, better. Oh, somewhat. They're not. They're not particularly great, though. <laughs> we'll get to them. We'll get to them. He is. I. I don't think he understands the role. He's very weird in moments. Mm-hmm. For somebody who is a trained singer, he's. Very bad moments. And if we're going to talk about grading yeah. on a curve where I would give Crow a little bit of a break because he's not an actual singer, I would really harshly criticize Jackman at times because I made a joke about, is John Valjean Irish? Um, the original song where he's singing to baby Jesus in the church, he sounds Irish. Oh my God, that's the scene. And I'm playing it back now and you're right. He sounds Irish, doesn't he? He literally has, he does. He literally has an Irish accent for part of it. Never tries to be French. Now, granted, is, most of them don't, but he's the one that might be the most like the most criminal in terms of he just like blatantly sounds like several other countries throughout. It's you're right. And that is another one of those weird turducken kind of things where it's an Australian guy trying to do a British dialect while he's singing as a French character. And suddenly he sounds Irish. <laughs> yeah. He really does. He really sounds Irish. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> it's so confused by that scene. Um, well, that scene also is just one of the worst directed scenes I've ever seen. It looks, I actually made this note. Um, it, but- it butchers the song too. Horribly butchers that song. Absolutely horribly butchers that song. But the blocking in that is one of the most confusing things I've ever seen. Oh, yeah. It's just, he just walks up and down this one and this one like aisle, uh, just the entire song. And I, I literally made the note. I said, um, 
Cooper blocks this scene like a high school theater director who it's their first show ever and they're the gym teacher. Yeah. Like they yeah. had But also like, Go ahead. No, no, they're like, like, yeah, like he needs to be center stage. He needs to he needs to show agitation, so we'll have him pace constantly. But we won't have him pace in several directions like an actual person. He'll literally just like A to B, B to A, A to B, B to A over and over again. Right. But it's also the least vocally vocally strenuous performance that he has to give. And Jackman's not he is bumming notes all over the place in that one song. It is really distracting. That's the most surprising thing is it's not just that Jackman is flubbing stuff on the complicated, really hard ballads. He flubs stuff on like the, the interlude songs, the transitional songs. It's like constantly, even like he's sort of like when you hear him come into uh, the opening song, he's even flubbing notes in like an entire chorus there. And it's just very weird. It's so weird. Cause it's like, you could just show him. You don't have to hear him. We could just hear all the actual talented singers they hired to play the chorus people do all this stuff. Yeah, there's it's it's a very weird performance that gets a lot of praise from people in for reasons I do not understand. Yeah, I I have no idea how the hell that I think once again, as you kind of alluded to before, we were so kind of like dazzled by the fact that this was a show that people said for a long time was just unfilmable. Yeah. And I think people were just so dazzled by the fact that it was finally up there and that the fact that he wasn't Russell Crowe, I think that so many people were just kind of like, oh, ooh, it's so good. I think there's, I think the Russell Crowe thing is a reason that like four or five people in this movie get credit that they don't deserve because people mm-hmm. are like, well, they're famous, but they're not Russell Crowe. And it's like, that's not, doesn't mean they're good. Mm-hmm. Um, let's jump to Crow. Okay, as Javert, the best character in the in the in the entire show, I think the best character in every medium of this story. To be honest, he's the most he's the most interesting one. He's the most morally complex one. Um, he has the most growth, the most like turmoil and stuff. I don't hate Crow in this. I, that is. might be that may, might be my hot take, and some people, everyone hates Crow. And I like I'll be honest. He's not my least favorite performance in this. He's probably not even top bottom three. I he I don't he has moments where he's singing songs and he's trying to sing and that's kind of cringy. But like I don't hate him all the time he's on screen. So like I feel like in the musical that I don't like as much as I don't like this one, that's kind of a pass for me. No, I'm the same way. I actually think that he's pretty good in this. I think that he gets shit on way too much. He's hitting mm-hmm. he is hitting a lot of the notes. It's just that so Russell Crowe is vocally trained um, for like rock and roll. Yeah. He has a different style, vocal style than literally everyone else in the show that are trained more on a classical level, if they were trained at all. So it's just mm-hmm. so much easier to pinpoint when he's not hitting the notes as compared to everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That does come through. He's more, more precise at times unless. um and his diction is just missing. Yeah, that's a that's a bad one. But that's very much a classical trained singers mm-hmm. are are diction. I got diction drilled into me like crazy. Diction uh, for days. You really do. If you're a classically trained singer, oh yeah, 
diction is they they stress diction and diction and breathing that was the first two things my choir teacher taught me which was diction and breathing she was like you have to sing from your diaphragm it always has to be down here and that's why you can project and you have to do diction because diaphragm plus diction is the way you go exactly and i think that's i think everyone else was taught to do that except for him and i think that's why everyone pinpoints him as the quote-unquote worst performance of the show and guess what? This podcast says he's definitely not the worst performance in the show. He's not. What is? We will find out. We will keep talking. Um, Anne Hathaway as Fantine, which is the Oscar-winning performance in this, which is, mm -hmm. to me, somewhat mind-boggling. Um, I guess... I, I'll take that back for a second. I understand why that performance wins. You can play the big song number, and that can be your Oscar moment. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily... It not necessarily, doesn't necessarily deserve it, but you can at least understand why that performance, you pull the one scene out and you go, look, give her a Best Supporting Actress. Exactly. It's the whole one-shot thing. Um, I actually really think that she's in that top three of the performances for this film. And I think the reason I say that is more because on a technical level, she's doing something that's really impressive because she is just crying buckets of water and she is literally straining her voice when she does that but she's hitting a majority of the notes in that song um and it's super hard to be able to do that even a lot of people that work in professional theater like i do have a hard time being able to actually cry and sing at the same time so oh, yeah. i I think on a technical level, she's one of the more impressive people in the movie. Yeah, it's not a performance I necessarily love that much, but I do think yeah. if I'm going to give her credit, I would give her credit. I think she does what she's supposed to be doing. I think in some ways, the stuff I don't like about her performance is a lot of the choices that Hooper makes in her direction. And yep. a lot of like, um, they really run her through the gutter. They really like crush that character and make mm -hmm. her look nasty and terrible in really short succession. And yeah, um, I don't think it works very well because it's so extreme and so jarring and also so quick. She goes from basically being like, she has a job in a factory and she's doing all right. And she's sending her kid money to being like rip her teeth out and cut all her hair off. And like, it goes mm -hmm. really downhill. I think she's pretty good vocally in that song though. Um, mm -hmm. She kind of, she kind of hits all the, the words and the notes that she needs to do. So I think, yeah, I think she's good. I think she's one of the better performances in the film. Yeah, I think top three. I feel like there's only like, there's not many that you'd give a pass to a positive yeah. grade. I don't there's know if I- Maybe four, maybe. Yeah, I think even though I like Crow more than others, I don't think I'd still give him a passing grade. I think no. he's still, he's like a, he's a D minus, but like he's not an F like some of the other people in the show. Yeah, um, exactly. Let's talk about Amanda Siegfried as Cosette. Do okay. You have some? Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to let you go first here. So I'm go not going to lie. The first two times I ever saw this movie, I hated her. Mm. Um, I softened a bit on this watch. I still... A personal thing with me, and it's not the fault of anyone, is mm. that whenever there's a, a vocalist who has that insane like warble in their voice whenever oh. like, it literally any note always just throws my ears off once the again vibrato. yeah yeah once again 
not to discredit her as a singer, like she's doing a good job, but she's also playing a character, unfortunately, that is the least developed in the movie and in the stage show, to be fair. Oh, there's a reason that the that every time you look at a cast of the show on Broadway, the famous person is playing Eponine, not mm-hmm. Cosette. Because mm-hmm. Cosette is a boring, boring role. It yeah. is it is hilarious, though. It's kind of funny, though, that they cast the famous person as Cosette and the non-famous person as Eponine in the show. I want to talk about that real quick. Yeah, go ahead. I remember being in college when they were starting to do the casting for this. Mm-hmm. And... I remember when they were first announcing the casting, the studio, it was either like the studio or Tom Hooper or like somebody said that the one character that they were going to give to a total unknown and they were going to do like open casting for was Cosette. And I know so many people that I went to college with that were like, (laughs) I'm going to get my shit ready. I'm going to train. I'm going to look out for when those auditions are. And then they go, and we're going to cast Amanda Seyfried. Like, just crushing so many people who wanted to get that role. It is a weird choice. Mm-hmm. That is a, like, that is the role if you want to throw a nobody into it. You really can, because... Oh, yeah. No one cares about that role. It's not an, It's not important to the show. It's not important, really. Like, her only purpose mm-hmm. is daughter of Fantine, adopted mm-hmm. daughter of Jean Valjean, Love interests of Marius. That's mm-hmm. the only purpose of that entire character. Does She's not literally have, a MacGuffin. Does not have a single thought in her head related to herself. It is always about somebody else. Yeah. Pretty much. I don't hate yeah. the performance. She's fine. Yeah. She's good. I, the vibrato annoys me as well because that was something I was trained not to do. Um, mm-hmm. And that's like a technical thing. I'm not going to ding her for that. I think she's fine. She's like... Yeah, she's a three out of five. If we're giving performances, like I think she's she's fine. She does what she's doing, but like no yeah. one is ever going to watch. I, I generally, I think that I think that even on the Wikipedia, it said that people were like praising that performance, and I'm like, who on earth praises Cosette walking out of lame is? That's just not a. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been to a stage production where anyone was like, you know, who my favorite character was, Cosette. She's she's just uninteresting. And in some ways, that's yeah. like you want to have your biggest critique of the of the musical in its origins. Like, you basically took a character that's very important to all the people in her life and made her just a nothing. It's like, yeah, she's basically only useful as in relation to the men or women in her life. Um, yeah, and as much as I love the stage show, that's always been the biggest problem with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Eddie Redmayne as Marius. Um, I think he plays it well when he's acting as like the kind yes. of spoiled, kind of bratty, rich kid who's just like, we're going to start a revolution. I don't understand the actual consequences of anything in life, but we're going to start a revolution. Don't like his singing. That character is – Marius is one of the more impressive vocal performances in the show. Mm-hmm. And I think the most frustrating one is um, Empty Chairs and Empty Tables, which he just – drops the ball like completely on and that is supposed to be a really sad and poignant number at the end of your show and with him it's just like it's forgettable it's like you'd fast forward through it i'm a little bit more forgiving of that song mainly because it's it's a song that i have heard so many people do for auditions like through thin walls 
Um, and I have heard way worse uh, attempts That's at it. Good. That's probably yeah. True. But you're right. Vocally, I I was a little bit more forgiving the last time I had watched it, but watching it this time, it yeah, it's sort of like a Muppet singing, like. <laughs> 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 Which is probably why Zach was more forgiving of this movie. Can I have a, can I have a Muppet Lay Miz, please? I would like to. Yo, that. a Muppet Lay Miz, but the only live action actor is Javert. I'm down with this. I'm down. Yeah, with this me too. Much. I'm very down with this. So you're more forgiving of this than I am, but uh, a little bit, but not a little bit. Yeah, because you're right. He is giving a good acting performance, but when it comes to the singing, he's not great yeah i would agree um i'm gonna let you go first in the next one which is i think the best two performances which is sasha baron cohen helena Bonham carter as uh master and madame thenardier who are just yeah yeah go ahead um sasha baron cohen seems to be the only person who gets to get away with less strenuous moments where his voice can just actually like you know come from the diaphragm and actually give like a good vocal performance um plus i i kind of hate the, an ongoing joke in movies where the person is constantly getting the name wrong of a character this is one of the only times it actually kind of works because he's not saying Every time he says it, it's really like under his breath because he knows that it's wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and Helena Bonham Carter is probably giving. Yeah, they're the two best. She's probably number two after him, but it's pretty close because she's really expressive in her face. She's like one of the only people who is like super expressive in this movie. Where everyone else is kind of just like the same miserable face, um, yeah. But because of that, you're so much more drawn into this character, and just the best scene in this movie overall for me is when Valjean comes to take Cosette away from the Thenardiers because they are trying so goddamn hard to pull the same tricks they pull on everyone. And it's just not working. <laughs> frustrating them. It's a great scene. It's a great scene. Yeah, I would agree Sasha's slightly better than Helena. Um, he's the one who really comes out of this looking good, and I'm surprised that there was not more push for him. So I feel like if I wanted to give an Oscar to anyone in this movie, and I'm not saying I'd give it to him either. Right. But like he's the one who feels like that's the showstopper one scene performance that really does impress and I do really enjoy. They're very funny. Master of the House is it is supposed to be a real lighthearted song in the middle and the fact that they mm -hmm. nail it so well I think does help tonally because if they missed that in midst of missing some of the more serious stuff you would have a really really rough musical that got right. real dark and real depressing real fast so I think that and, succeeding is, is incredibly important no good sorry for interrupting but there is one other change to the movie that I completely forgot about um, when you asked earlier so Tenardier's character is actually supposed to have a song when he's in the sewers robbing all the dead bodies. Right. And I think if you gave Sh Sasha Baron Cohen that, it could have been like a real 
real good moments that this movie could have used. And to not to know that you had Sasha Baron Cohen giving the performance that he's giving in this movie and then just completely cut out one of his bigger songs, it's just a waste of potential. Right. That is a really it's a that's a really funny song too. It's super dark mm-hmm. and like super messed up, but also like like pretty good. And I think he would have kind of nailed that because he has that kind of really warped, twisted sense of humor mm-hmm. as an actor. I think, yeah, you're right. That would have been it also would have made that scene more interesting because in oh, yeah. reality in they basically try to do it without doing it by having him take the ring from Marius. But like that's a much less interesting version of a and it also be- it better explains why he's down there. Mm-hmm. Like in this version, they sort of like fall out the chute and he's just there. And it's like, why is he there? Yeah. Like you have to guess that he's doing something, but they it would have been better if they just let him be like full on kind of disgusting and evil and, mm-hmm. you know, walking on the sewer, pulling gold out of people's teeth and taking rings yes. and stuff. Oh my God. Because in that show, in that song in the show, it really shows like the real depth and level that he will go to, to like get money. Oh yeah. It really takes it. Like you knew that he was a guy who would steal and water down wine and do all the stuff. That's like unscrupulous, but not necessarily evil. And then this one, it's like, no, he's legitimately just, you know, grave robbing, grave robbing, taking rings from dead people and stuff. And after he hid during all the fighting. So it is uh, a kind of the real turn on him. Um, Samantha Marks plays Eponine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's pretty good. Yeah, thank God for her in this movie, to be completely honest with you. Like, yeah. I Once again, I hate what they did with their, her character. Hate it. Yeah. But she is one of the only people in this show or in this movie where there's any real emotion that's more than just, you know, I hate my life. Yeah, yeah. She has the, one of the more interesting storylines. Um, I think it is, it is, it shows at times that she is not as an experienced of an actor as some of the other people. She looks a little mm-hmm. green at times. It's very much like a... At least not I, for movies. She, I think this is her, th- I think I'm pretty sure this is her movie debut. Yeah. Um, and, but the good news is she can sing the songs. And I think in this movie, after so many people have blown so many songs, you're like, yes, all right, somebody's got this. They can sing the songs. And I think I will kind of tie this into the second one. This is part of the reason why I may be more forgiving of Aaron Tivet as Andros than you would, is that he's another one where it's just like, okay, he can sing the songs. He can sing Red and Black. He can sing the songs that I need him to sing. I don't think the performance is necessarily great, but it's at least it's like, okay, this person is a trained singer who knows how to sing this show and just kind of can do his job. And after so many people have blown it, I, I think mm-hmm. I might enjoy that more than you. You seem to be more critical of this performance than I am. And I don't blame Aaron Tveit for this at all. I think that he's doing a really good job with what he was given, but having seen the stage show a couple times and having been in a production of it, I think that he's miscast. Interesting. Because Andros is supposed to be this really, like, commanding presence. Mm-hmm. Like, he is supposed to, like, you see him and you immediately go, okay, 
that's the guy that's leading everything. And to me, Aaron Tveit is just not that person. No. Like, I, and I can't tell if it's like his presence, like his, he doesn't really seem to have any sense of real command. Um, he's slimmer built than a lot of the other people there. And he has a very, Andros is this, when he sings in most productions I've seen, at least he's got this very rich, deep, like baritone, mm-hmm. and he is a very light tenor. So you're saying, you're saying he's more Marius than he is. He's more Marius. Yeah. If he was cast as Marius, I think that would have been absolutely perfect casting. I just happen to think that while he's doing a good job with what he was given, he was just miscast. That's fair. That's very fair. Now you, you brought that up. You're right. He is a little bit waifish. He is a little bit like, he does fit more the like spoiled rich kid Marius thing than he does like an actual revolutionary. Cause Andras, I believe is Marius is a revolutionary. Andras is a real revolutionary. Like he is falling. Yeah. Like we're going to kill people. We're going to fight back. We're going to do whatever it takes. And Marius is more of a, a romantic or an idealist who actually thinks that they can change stuff. Andras is a little bit more like let's burn shit to the ground and mm-hmm. you know, let's see what happens. Yeah. Um, um, and the final performance that's major is Daniel Huddleston as Gavroche, which I feel like he just kind of does his role. Yeah, I mean, he's good. I feel like kid performances in musicals are almost always graded on a, like, it's a check, it's a check plus, check minus system. Because mm-hmm. um, it's like, either they just do their job and you don't really think about them, or you just, they're terrible. Like, I feel like, and unfortunately, kids' roles in musicals are often not that impressive or show-stealing or memorable. It's just more like, did they screw it up or did they not screw it up? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about any of the other um, actors in the show? We talked about Colm Wickinson as the priest. You mentioned there uh, was somebody else as. Yeah. The original Eponine is also in this movie. Um, and she gets like two lines of dialogue as one of the prostitutes in lovely ladies. And it is. I'm really angering you. You have, you have, Tony, the person who won the Tony Award and the Olivier Award for playing the role of Eponine, and you give her two lines, you completely cover her in makeup, and you waste her. Like, I don't know what else they could have done with her, but still, that's just kind of insulting to me. Um, her name is Frances, uh, Frances Ruffle. Yeah. Um, and she's a super talented singer and actress and she's just wasted in this movie the only other person that i would even really bring up is um his name is killian donnelly he plays confrere he's one of the french revolutionaries um he's the one who's like going berserk after right right right. yeah dark-haired guy avrosh dies really good and i once again i think they just kind of waste the character and a really good performance this is interesting. If you go into the Wikipedia page for this, actually at the bottom after all the like the name actors is a list of all the people who are in previous concert versions of this or touring company versions of this or ear, you know, West End version of this. It is interesting that, you know, we've talked about musicals where, you know, Cabaret has at least one major carryover in Joel Gray. Um, mm-hmm. The producers carries over 
basically the entire cast except for the additions Ula. of Uma, Thur Uma Thurman yeah. and Will Ferrell. And then, so I don't know the timeline that well. This may just have been ridiculous. I believe the musical is a lot older than this movie, right? 1986, I want to say. Okay. Something around there. So it wouldn't have been really made a lot of sense to try to carry over actors from the stage production to this one. No, but they do concert versions of this like all the time and it's for like anniversaries and it's one of the longest running shows in Broadway history. Um, so Sorry. I guess it would have been hard to carry people over, but then you could have found people who have performed like Norm Lewis would have been a great Javert. He played Javert in one of the anniversary concerts. So like, also put, like yeah. that's the only place he could have gone, I guess. Yeah, it would have been interesting to see what they'd done. They, they, I mean, the concerts, the 25th anniversary concert is like two years before this. Um, Norm Lewis, Leah Salonga. Oh, that's where they got Samantha Barks from, mm -hmm. that concert. Yeah, they didn't, there's a lot of people, there's even like, um, Bishop and like you know roles like that where you could have brought in uh, they could have brought in uh, Ramin Karamu as Andros or something. It is interesting that they just outside of these really, in some ways, slightly insulting cameos for very famous people for the history of the show, and unfortunately, a really bad one from Colm Wilkinson. They really don't try to tie it to the you know the stage production that you know their audience may have loved. Yeah, yeah, it's it's disappointing because they could have had. There are so many people who know a lot of performers because of the anniversary shows, and they just, you know, pick people who couldn't sing. Real bizarre. They did not try to put a Jonas brother in this. Is that one of the most bizarre choices? Like he feels like the perfect person for an actual Broadway version. He's famous. Like that feels like somebody they would have thought of. Right, but I think that the one thing I remember hearing about people's reaction from the anniversary concert that he was in was that he was okay, but not great. So I think yeah, that fair. probably hurt his chances. Um, let's talk about some of the almost casting people. Oh, oh my God, okay. I'm looking at the movie right these. now. So originally, Hugh Jackman was in negotiations to star opposite Paul Bettany at Javert. Which I don't think works. No. Yeah. Not as well, at least. I don't think it's at least just not as intimidating of a presence. Yeah, there's a there's a thing about Russell Crowe that works in this film is that Russell Crowe is a fucking big dude. Not a big jacked muscles. He's just big. He is a big, big man, like mm -hmm. thick. And just like he's a solid object, and he's very and the, the, the beard and everything, he's just a big person. He's very intimidating. He's been like that ever since he even came on the scene for most Americans and Romper Stomper and stuff. He's always been kind of an intimidating. He's even intimidating when he's the, when he's the hero and stuff like Gladiator. He's just a kind of a built big dude. Yeah, and the scene where he like fights all of the uh, the revolutionaries off in the bar, uh, it looks like he was actually fighting them. He's like, I don't think Paul Bettany could have done that. You weak ass twenty year olds. That's probably how he actually fights people. Yeah, oh I'm sorry. So they cast Jackman and Crow in twenty eleven, and then they're trying to figure out who's Fantine. 
before they cast Hathaway, they consider Amy Adams. No. Okay. That could have really worked really well, actually. Wait, really? You don't think she'd have the I same vocal so. problem? Okay, she's not the worst one. There's definitely worse ones. Jessica right. Beale. <laughs> nope. Tammy nope. Blanchard. Nope. Somebody named Kristen Kruk, who I guess is known for Smallville. Um, Marion uh, Cotillard, which would have been nice to have an actual French person. I actually might have dug that. She can sing, too. Yeah. She can sing. Levian Rose. Like, she can actually sing. Yeah, and nine. She's probably the best part of that movie. I like Daniel Day-Lewis quite a lot in that film. Better than I was expecting, but... I think he's pretty good in Guido's song. Um, and then Kate Winslet and Rebecca Hall. I actually do think Marion Cotillard probably is the best choice out of the group. I think she's the best choice out of the group just because of... We know that she can sing and that she's French and... I, I would have loved to have seen Kate Winslet in that role, but Cotillard probably would have been the, the strongest choice. You never can hurt by putting Kate Winslet in. Yeah. Um, Unless you so, make her do a Delco accent. They get they get Redmayne. It looks like Medrim is the only choice. Um, Which is weird. Well, didn't... I, I, I guess... Yeah, because this is... That's true, because Redmayne at this point is not that famous. Mm-hmm. Because he hasn't hit his his Oscar run of movies yet, he's basically been in like Elizabeth the Golden Age and the other Bowling Girl and My Week with Marilyn. Yeah, he's yeah he's he's a couple years away from everything showing. So that is weird. He's the only person they considered. Um, they offer the short list of people for Eponine was Scarlett Johansson, uh, Leah Michelle, like oh god no, um, Miley Cyrus. <laughs> oh god no. Tamson Edgerton. No idea. Who is not related to Taryn Edgerton. Um, I should just check. Taylor Swift and Evan Rachel Wood. Evan Rachel Wood wouldn't have been bad. I don't know how she is as a singer. Yeah. Then they then the press reports that they offered it to Taylor Swift. And then I remember that like, actually. Taylor Swift, like, that's not accurate. And then they just cast um, Samantha Barks who was playing Nancy in Cameron McIntosh's tour of Oliver. Um, That's a good role for her, actually. Samantha Barks has been play- has, according to Wikipedia, has been auditioning for 15 weeks straight at this point. So, like, they did not... It's hilarious. They did not want to give her this role. Um, and they must have tried to test a bunch of other people and realized that they couldn't play the role before first. Uh, that's. I'm actually really sad that she hasn't become like a bigger actress because she's doing a really good job. I mean, like it's obvious that it's her first time on screen, but she's doing a good job. I wish that she had blown up a little bit more. Yeah, she's not only not blown up; she literally doesn't have a career. If you look at her, if you can go look at her Wikipedia, you've never heard of these movies she's in. But she like went yeah, back. The and only other did- thing I remember her. Yeah, I, the only other thing I remember her being in was a stage production of Amelie. Yeah, I think she did do that. Yep, she did that in 2015. She did last five years. She did Pretty Woman the Musical. I guess she's doing Frozen on stage. Um, 
And then it basically just gets announced that they Weird. they were gonna. They, then you're right. They were gonna look for an unknown for Cosette, and then they just cast Siegfried. And um, then they just cast uh, Bonham Carter. They cast Cohen. They cast Trevet. Um, they cast the original. They cast Cole Mogensen and Rafael. And it looks like that might have been where. Um, yeah. They didn't really do much. So there's nothing else for the other people. That is interesting, though. Uh, mm-hmm. Looking at who's that, the alternatives. That that whole Cosette thing has always baffled me. I don't know why you do that. It's a. I genuinely wonder if Amanda Siegfried was oh. like, "They're doing Les Mis. Can you can you get me in that agent?" And they were like, "Hey, well, you can play this character." I was like, "Sure, I'll take it. It's with whatever." Because um, that's a. Weird choice. Weird, weird, weird choice. This movie got eight Oscar nominations, including Best Picture. And it won sound mixing, makeup and hairstyling, and then supporting actress. I don't think the sound mixing on this is particularly good. It's pretty bad, actually. I'm fine with makeup and hairstyling. I think they did a fine job with that. I would have been fine with costumes. But, like, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. This movie yeah, is he, huge, and it made a crap load of money. I'm surprised. Yeah. Um, I'm not surprised. I think people were just dazzled by the fact that they finally put Les Mis on stage oh, yeah. on the screen. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. You had a, a relatively famous musical property, and you made a movie of it. So, like, unsurprisingly, people wanted to see that. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to talk about uh, with Lemis? More thoughts, takes? Uh, before my internet cut out. <laughs> um, not really. I think that we covered a lot of the things that I had in my notes. Um, the one thing that I also do want to point out is that uh, Tom Hooper is such a hack that I know you haven't seen Cats, but mm-hmm. he basically steals the whole one shot for I Dreamed a Dream and does it again for memory in Cats. And I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, other than that, I think the last thing that I would probably say is that I don't know if it deserved a makeup award or nomination from the Oscars because at the end of the film, when... Um, Valjean is dying. Doesn't look that bad. He really doesn't. He's he looks like he looks like he has a really bad cold and he's just exhausted. Yeah, he also ages weirdly quickly at the end of the film. They're like, he needs to be sick. Let's age him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, he was not old when he was carrying Marius, but now he's old. Time to die. And it's been maybe six months. And yeah. he looks like he's in his 70s all of a sudden. Yeah. It is an interesting uh, time jump there. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I guess my final thoughts would be that this is interesting to talk about as a movie because of the choices he makes in the adaptation. So for this month, it fits in why we wanted to talk about it here. It's not particularly enjoyable. It really drags. It is very boring in a lot of moments. It's frustrating because there are moments that I could watch on YouTube as a clip. This feels like a movie that I would not rewatch again 
I would just watch mm-hmm. Master of the House or, you know, a couple of the scenes here and there. And honestly, I, I found myself doing this last night when I was like prepping for this. I found myself watching versions of the concert more than I found myself watching the versions from this movie. Cause it's just, um, I just, I just prefer those. They're better. They're more enjoyable. Um, there was a particular Javert I was really enjoying. Uh, let's see if I can find his name. I'm going to feel bad if I can't. I, I bet I know which one you're talking about. And I don't remember his name either, but I believe he's an Australian. He was in the Philip Quast. Philip Quast is his name. Yes. Oh, not the, the one I was thinking of then. I loved Philip Quast's version of um, Javert. He was very, very impressive. He's Australian, though. So, oh, so it is the same guy then. Yes, he was in the yeah he was in the tenth anniversary, the Dreamcasting concert yeah. from '95. Yeah, that one with Colm Wilkinson. That I loved him. Fantastic, he was fantastic, so good. Um, I liked Norm Lewis, but I did not like Norm Lewis as much as I liked Philip Quest. Quest just exactly. Like, he yeah, was, the same he, was, he was perfect. He had like the look for it, um, and just just nailed it. Um, but yeah. So I would like to thank uh, everyone for for watching, listening this uh, ninety minute long discussion of a musical that the, neither of us liked. This is this is exactly what I knew it was going to be. You put Bar and me in a musical in a room together. We're going to talk about it for at least ninety minutes, even if both of us <laughs> hated the process of actually watching this movie to be able to do the podcast. It took me six hours. I yeah, because we ta- we actually noticed this. I think you were talking about watching it like two days before we recorded. I watched it over like two days in chunks because I would like watch like 20 minutes and I'd have to like go pee or something because I got really <laughs> bored. I ended up watching, part, I, I would like watch part of it and then I would be like, I'm kind of bored. And I watched the the Isabella Stewart Museum thing on Netflix instead. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. I basically watched YouTube and it's like, this is boring. Is there anything else interesting going on? Um <laughs> Yeah, so this is, uh, we've come to the end of our first podcast without Zach. Zach is only on assignment. He did not die. He was not fired. Um, he was not fired for anything inappropriate related to Muppets, regardless of any rumors that have been going around. They did not have No, but he is pitching that Lame Miss Muppet movie for us. He's going to be very mad that he was not here in the episode where Lame Miss <laughs> Muppet movie was uttered several times, because I'm pretty sure he would have had a full cast. Zach Ford, when you listen to this, you have to message me and Barr. And you have to fully cast Les Mis with Muppet characters. Javert stays the same. You can pick an actor. You can leave it Russell Crowe. You can pick somebody else. But we no, you to have to leave Russell Crowe. That makes it so Crow. much better. Leave Russell Crowe and Muppets. Send us your picks. Um, we really want to know. Um, yeah. With that being said, thank you so much, Barb, for coming on and like guesting slash co-hosting because, uh, you know, Zach was on assignment, so that was incredibly helpful. And it was incredibly helpful as you, because I know that we could definitely have a long-form discussion uh, without any trouble. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I appreciate it. I appreciate you dealing with the internet (laughs) that I have. It's it's all right. It's all right. We've all all dealt with some weird stuff. I accidentally clicked off at one time and left Zach by himself and then came back. We've had a weird time. Um, with that being said, you said your internet is spotty. Let's let's wrap this up quickly. Thank you everyone for watching, listening. Um, like us, uh, give us likes, give us comments, give us anything you want. Send us emails. You can find information in the description. Find our letterboxes. Both Mars, mine, and bars are down there in the description. If you're looking, um, tweeted us. Tell us things you liked. Tell us things you don't like. Maybe you have a completely different take in this. Tell us why we're wrong. Tell us why we're right. Um, we love engagement and people who are 
watching these movies along with us and engaging with us uh, with it on the same level that we are. Um, that being said, we will see you next week. Peace out, folks.